Welcome to the DFW Child Podcast, a place for local parents to tell their stories, share mom truths, and dig deeper into real issues, all while celebrating this crazy, challenging, beautiful journey called parenthood. Let's welcome our host, Brittany McElroy. While lots of people are on edge about COVID, the CDC has made a push to warn parents about a different disease that could affect their kids, acute flaccid myelitis. It's a somewhat mysterious polio-like condition that has left kids paralyzed after getting a common respiratory virus. While it is very rare, it does seem to peak in the late summer and fall of every other year. And right now is one of those potential peak times. Doctors worry parents might hesitate to take their kids into the doctor or a hospital because of COVID concerns. So they want people to know the signs of AFM, and they want people to know how important it is to seek treatment if you see them in your kid. In this week's episode, we'll hear from a mom who watched her son fight through AFM. The worst days of our life. (laughs) As well as one of the leading doctors studying the disease, who happens to be right here in the DFW area. Almost a year ago, Elizabeth Cardone's two kids both came down with a cold. She didn't think much of it. Anyone with kids knows they get sick. And they were otherwise pretty healthy. I was, I guess, towards the end, at the very end of September, both our kids had just a respiratory virus. Uh, Our best friend's kids had the exact same virus, uh, just your typical kid's cold. Not a huge deal. Uh, Corbin's lasted a little bit longer, and on, on about day 10, um, he respiked a fever and had seemed to be getting better and then started to get sick again, but still was not abundantly concerned. I'm an ER nurse and my husband's an ER doctor. So we have a pretty, um, you know, just low threshold for concern. But on a Tuesday morning, her son Corbin woke up suddenly unable to walk. He couldn't use his legs essentially from the waist down. Um, he was really weak. And so at that point, realized something was seriously wrong. While she knew the chances were slim, she couldn't stop thinking about a story she saw on social media about another Texas family. By God's grace alone, I knew what acute flaccid myelitis was um, through following another family whose son was diagnosed with it back in 2016. They live in Houston, and I didn't know them personally, but I just stumbled across their story on Facebook when he was diagnosed back in 2016. So I had followed this young boy's Facebook page for uh, over three years and just had seen the updates on him and was fascinated by this thing called AFM, just being in the ER myself and my husband being there too, had a kind of fascination with it because, you know, it was something that was so bizarre um, and something you just didn't want to miss if you ever came across it in a child. And so I knew the hallmarks for it were limb weakness following a respiratory illness. And so as soon as Corbin collapsed that morning when I tried to stand him up and then, you know, did it a couple of times and tried to get him to walk and I knew he truly couldn't walk. He really couldn't use his legs. Um, I immediately went to AFM. Like that, that was my thought, uh, which worst case scenario. She got Corbin to his pediatrician who transferred him to a nearby children's hospital for more tests. He had an MRI the next day and that MRI came back showing that there was swelling and what they call like a spinal lesion um, through his entire thoracic vertebrae. 
Um, and at that point, they were saying that it was definitely uh, transverse myelitis and possibly acute flaccid myelitis. With her worst fears confirmed, she started praying and reaching out to the family whose story she had followed on Facebook. They told her she should try to talk to a doctor in Dallas. My name is Benjamin Greenberg. I am a professor of neurology at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, Texas, and a member of the O'Donnell Brain Institute here. My focus uh, professionally is on uh, autoimmune conditions and infections of the central nervous system. He explains AFM as damage to one of the two wires connecting your brain to your spinal cord, and it is a very important wire. In acute flaccid myelitis, the very beginning of wire number two gets damaged and uh, in many cases dies. And so you lose the connection between your brain and your muscle because wire number two has died. The classic clinical feature of acute flaccid myelitis is that middle term, flaccid. What it means is the weakness is associated with loose uh, muscles. The way I describe it is like wet spaghetti. It's just limp and you can move it all around and there's no control over it. At this point, Elizabeth didn't know the neurologist who would be assigned to her son's case or Dr. Greenberg, but her first request was to ask for a consult. The neurologist who walked in the next morning very easily could have just said, I don't need to consult anyone else. But the words he said to me is that no one in medicine should ever have an ego and I'm willing to consult whoever you want me to consult. And at that point, I just started like bawling because I knew my son was going to get fantastic care because um, I mean, I think his, his name is Dr. Dyat. He's the, the man, the doctor here in Temple. And he's kind of the unsung hero of this whole story because he could have put the brakes on getting us um, to Dr. Greenberg, but he didn't. He hit the accelerator pedal and he called. Dr. Greenberg answered the call and suggested a more aggressive treatment than originally planned. While nervous, they decided to go for it. In order to do Dr. Greenberg's more aggressive plan, it meant transferring to the PICU, it meant putting in a central line, which comes with a bunch of risks of its own. It meant starting something called plasmapheresis, which is a pretty big deal. It takes out all of your blood and filters out the plasma and then returns your blood. It's similar to dialysis in a sense. So it was, we were taking on a lot of risk, um, not knowing what, would our son ever walk again? At this point, we had no idea. Um, we knew that a lot of kids with AFM ended up on ventilators. They ended up on respiratory failure. A lot of them come home um, needing respiratory support for years, if not the rest of their life, meaning that they're on trachs and they're in wheelchairs. And so we knew that, again, we were racing against the clock. One of the hardest parts of treating AFM is that the research on it is limited. It wasn't even called acute flaccid myelitis until 2014. Not long after Dr. Greenberg started to see some of the mysterious cases in his work. But he says the notion that this is a new disease is actually a misconception. The research around this has actually been quite hindered because if you look at over 150 years of literature on this, everybody has called it something different. And so if I do a search, so, it, so when I'm looking for something scientific in the peer-reviewed literature. I, I go to a, a website, PubMed, it houses all the medical journals, and I'll type acute flaccid myelitis. Well, that's a term that we're just using in the last eight years, really, last uh, six years. This went through 40 different name changes over the last 150 years. What is new about the most recent cases of AFM is the cyclical nature. Doctors have noticed a spike in the number around the same time every other year. 
this pattern of every other year outbreaks between uh, July, August and October, November, kind of that late summer, early fall, these spikes it, were something we had not been seeing back in the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s. According to Greenberg, most of the AFM cases over the last eight years during these spikes were caused by enterovirus D68. What happened, as far as we can tell, is the virus mutated over time. So enterovirus D68 uh, had been isolated from a human back in the 1960s. So we know the virus has circulated amongst humans for over 50, 60 years. But the virus that circulates every other year during these months is genetically different than what was circulating in the 1960s. Here's the thing. This type of virus is really common, but developing AFM is really rare. As best they can tell, the reason some kids are so negatively affected is a mix of the genetics of the person who's sick, the genetics of the virus, and a little bit of chance. It's a big blackjack game. It's, it's the odds. So a virus starts replicating in the back of your throat, and it the virus that is uh, genetically designed to work at that temperature, that humidity, those cells, that environment flourishes and does really, really well. Your lungs are a different environment, different temperature, different humidity, different cells. So if one mutant virus that's a little better for the lungs breaks it out and drops into the lungs and then flourishes and does really well, we've now change the virus, what's in your lungs versus what I swab out of the back of your throat may be subtly but importantly different. And so if that virus is growing and growing and growing, then one, literally one clone that's slightly better at living in a neuron drops out of the lung and invades a neuron and goes to the spinal cord, then all of a sudden you may have AFM. And so it may not just be the host genetics, it may be the random chance of how the virus evolves within a person. That's what happened to Corbin Cardone that landed him in the pediatric intensive care unit with his mom preparing herself that he may never walk again. And then this happened. Pretty good. Oh, yeah. awesome. just said yeah. Corbin recovered 100% in just weeks. <laughs> Corbin, keep going with Can you get the things on there for her? Get the dragon. Turn around, look. Stomp on it. I mean, it started 20 minutes ago. He just said, I want to walk. You got out of bed? Got out of bed. Something that is very unusual for kids who get AFM. Most kids are having recovery, uh, slow and steady. Part of it depends on what acute treatment they get. Part of it depends on the rehab they do. And part of it depends on how long you follow them out. Go! Just last week, Elizabeth took a video of Corbin riding his bike. Go, Corbin! Wow, buddy! How old are you? Three. Three. And you're doing a pedal bike all yourself? Yeah. Oh, I wow. See. Okay, I'll show it to you in a minute. Keep going. Just to, just to see him running and biking and... Good job, buddy! Swimming and I mean, truly on a day goes by that I look at something that he's doing physically and think, you know, like, Lord, you've given us a awesome, gift. Corbin. 
Elizabeth's mom gut credits his incredible recovery to the early aggressive treatments. So I asked Dr. Greenberg, how important is early detection? It's a great question and I have an incomplete answer. So um, in general, uh, we say early detection is always better and, and it has two parts to it. So the first is on the specific intervention side, we don't have enough data yet to know that if you get certain interventions in the first day versus the second day, how that changes the course. We think, and most of the data suggests it, it may be helpful, but I, I can't say that with 100% certainty. So I'd say more often than not, uh, there's an opportunity to, to help out, uh, but not always. But secondly, and, and, more, and just as importantly, I should say, is there are certain places within the spinal cord that if um, the virus is infected and you're seeing weakness evolve, it can uh, spread to affect breathing capabilities or swallowing capabilities. And if that occurs in an uh, observed setting of a hospital, uh, then by, kids are gonna make it through. We're gonna be able to maintain the breathing and make sure that they, they don't get into trouble. I, it scares me to think of that happening at home uh, and kids getting really sick without a healthcare provider available to do emergent intervention. The thought that your kid could have a regular cold. Yeah, it's a cold. It's a cough, a sore throat, cold, um, fever. And end up paralyzed or even worse from it is a terrifying thought. But while Greenberg wants parents to recognize the signs, he also wants them to remember it probably won't happen to your family. Thankfully, uh, this is still a rare bad outcome of a virus. And so in, in the years where we had uh, 200, 300 cases of paralysis, there were hundreds of thousands or a million people infected at the same time with the virus. It was still a rare event. And so every time one of my two daughters gets a cold, I have to remind myself they will likely not be paralyzed after the cold. Um, and it's because they're, you know, they're gonna get infected with things all the time. And the human body does a wonderful job of fighting them off and preventing these things the overwhelming majority of time, 99.999% of the time. And so do our best to prevent, stay calm when they get a cold. If you see something you're worried about, get them to a healthcare provider. Dr. Greenberg will be paying close attention this fall. It's a time when they would usually expect to see more cases. But with lots of kids not in school and people wearing masks and social distancing because of COVID, he's not sure there will be as many. He hopes one effect of the pandemic will be that people are more aware of preventing the spread of germs, because the things we can do to prevent COVID are the same things we can do to prevent other viruses, like the one that leads to AFM. I'm not saying we should social distance and mask forever uh, because coronavirus and enterovirus are different, but I, I will say one of the key things we can do for each other is not go to work when we're sick, not send our kids to school when they're sick. Even though it's a mild cold for your child, it may be a paralyzing cold for another child. So I'm a firm believer in we have a social obligation uh, to prevent the spread of viruses as much as possible because it isn't always about us. Uh, it's really about the next person. And so I, I think hopefully we're learning that lesson with COVID and what I'd like to see come out of this, if there was a silver lining to come out of this, is people have a greater understanding of this notion of how viruses work and have a differential 
effect on people and then what we can do to stop the stop the spread. Again, the signs of acute flaccid myelitis include limb weakness, sort of like spaghetti, and difficulty moving. It can also include difficulty swallowing or slurred speech, often after the child has a respiratory virus and a fever. It's rare, but if you see these symptoms, you should call your healthcare provider. We'd like to thank Elizabeth Cardone for sharing her family's story and Dr. Greenberg for his time. He is an incredibly busy man. Next week on the DFW Child Podcast, we're talking about maintaining your marriage, ways to build and keep a strong relationship anytime and specifically right now during the pandemic. Be sure to follow DFW Child on Facebook and Instagram so we can continue the conversation and check out the helpful parenting resources on dfwchild.com. Until next time.